The 50th running of the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race begins with the ceremonial start in downtown Anchorage on Saturday and the official restart in Willow on Sunday. After five decades of racing to Nome, what are some of the best stories from the trail? How do racers balance competing with also helping each other when problems happen on the route in extreme weather? Race veterans join us to talk about Alaska's iconic annual thousand-mile race to Nome today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. The Alaska Travel Industry Association provides leadership and guidance to Alaska's tourism businesses for how to operate safely across the state. Members can access updated industry resources related to COVID-19 at alaskatia.org. This message sponsored by ATIA. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. I don't know of any other city that shuts down a big chunk of its downtown area to let sled dogs and their drivers reign supreme over the streets and urban trails, if only for one day. But that will be the scene on Saturday in downtown Anchorage. Then the serious race starts on Sunday. What goes into the logistics and race strategy planning by drivers and their handlers in the lead-up to the race? There's a lot to coordinate. Food drops along the trail, transportation to the race start, keeping the team and their driver healthy for the rigors of a 1,000 miles across Alaskan wilderness. And what do drivers see out there when it's just them and their dogs and a whole lot of wild country? We've got people who know joining us today. Jeff King is a four-time Iditarod champ and has run the race so many times, I actually couldn't find the total, so we're going to have to find out about that from him. Mike Williams Sr. has also raced in the Iditarod multiple times and used his notoriety on the trail to promote sobriety. And Paige Drobny is also with us. Paige first ran the Iditarod in 2013 and I think has run the race eight times. I think that's right. Welcome, all of you. Thanks so much for being with us today. And you can also join our conversation, Alaskans. Were you around and watching 50 races ago when the first Iditarod happened? Have you raced dogs or volunteered along the trail to help out? Are you a teacher who follows the race with students? Or do you have a favorite musher or story? You can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 5508422 you can also email us talk at alaskapublic.org before we bring our guests in here, uh, because we're talking about the history of the race in this year's 50th running, let's hear from someone who was there at the beginning. Rod Perry ran the first Iditarod race in 1973 and has since dedicated himself to sharing the history of it. It was one of a kind. It does not fit in the Iditarod box. It was so outlandish. It was so preposterous. It was so grandiose. 
And it was so absurd. And if you don't know how a word like, say, glorious and absurd uh, go together in the same sentence, you don't know the first Iditarod. That's such a great, <laughs> such a great comment. That was Rod Perry, a musher in the first I did, Rod, and historian of the early days of the race. Rod has written two books about the trail. You can tune in to Alaska Insight on Alaska... Alaska Public Media Television later this week to hear more from Rod when we devote Friday night's program to the Iditarod. So Jeff King, I want to start out with you. You're going to be on the trail this year, but not driving a team. Tell us about what you'll be doing and where you'll be on the trail. And uh, please confirm how many times you've ran the Iditarod. Well, uh, the, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not sure either. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I felt bad that I couldn't find the number. Um, my first one was in 1981. Um, my cherished Iditarod belt buckle um, confirms that 1981 was my first year and uh, and uh, really wonderful memories of that. Um, but uh, <clears throat> this year, um, my, I the race i've been helping uh a gal that's been working for me the last several years named amanda otto she'll be running the husky homestead team um she's going out number 32 and i am very excited to have someone to mentor and uh and help who hangs on my every word uh makes me feel like a big shot here around husky homestead as she prepares but uh once she takes off on Sunday, I've been invited to go with the trail sweeps. They're an official group of four snow, snow machines um, that Iditarod uh, gives us the responsibility to make sure that we know where the back of the race is and that anyone, we, we stay behind the last musher the entire way that team will. Um, and, uh, we're there if needed, uh, but very likely just, um, maybe picking up messes and helping people that may in fact, uh, need our help, uh, on the trail. I'll sure. be getting off the snow machine in, uh, McGrath and, uh, long time, uh, race sweeper, Carolyn, um, we'll come in and I'll swap with her. So my personal involvement is from the start to McGrath where, uh, I turn the reins back over to Carolyn, who has done it for many, many years. Jeff, what, what did you think about Rod Perry's comment that the first race was glorious and absurd? Do you think that still well, applies? I wasn't, uh, oh, it absolutely still applies. Uh, Certainly, uh, yeah, uh, glorious and absurd. Um, as you know, I wasn't at the 1973 race, but uh, I can only imagine. And I just um, fawn over the photos and the history uh, of that race. And the first couple were, you know, I know people that were Ford Reeves and Mike Sheber took off together on a um, two. Two people in a sled with a Jeep pulse, and uh, they traveled together. Um, they didn't go far, but uh, absolutely glorious and absurd. 
Um, but people were learning uh, learning how to do it. I mean, uh, there weren't Scotty Allen uh, from from Nome. He wasn't around anymore to show him how to. He took 30 days to go from Nome to Anchorage, and uh, it was very ballsy to pull off that first one. I love hearing the stories. I love hearing that Joe Reddington um, took out a mortgage on his house so he could come up with the $50,000 purse that would be paid out. I believe the winner's share was $5,000 the first year, and it was all a result of Joe Reddington uh, mortgaging his house uh, to come up with cash. That's uh, that's incredible. Um, thank you, Jeff, for getting us started there. Mike, uh, Mike Williams Sr., I want to turn to you next. You last ran the Iditarod in 2013, I think. Was it hard to stop racing? Um, yes. Um, yeah, I think uh, uh, the last race uh, I had, uh, I um, ran with my son, uh, Mike Jr., and it was um, something that uh, really um, uh, was special to me. Um, and, and it was um, um, memorable, and we'll never forget that ever. And uh, I just really um, uh, like that. It's pretty hard to um, uh, stop if I um, had um, continuous sponsors and, um, and um, ability to run every year, I would do it. Um, but, um, you know, I just um, um, had to um, uh, uh, limit um, our participation. And Mike Jr., of course, um, has, uh, has, um, is uh, taking over uh, my running due to my um, uh, current health with my, um, uh, with my uh, leg. So, um, so I just uh, uh, love to uh, run it every year. I could do it. Um, like Joe Reddington did and Norman Vaughn and uh, those guys. And it was interesting. Uh, In 1973, I was um, over at um, uh, stationed in South Korea in in my service to um, uh, the Army. And um, uh, Owen and Robert Ivan were the first ones that uh, took off um, uh, the brothers on the same sled. And... um, took them 30 days to um, get up to uh, Nome and um, and they're, they're my grand, uh, grandpa's in our way um, and uh, Robert and Owen would tell me stories about their experiences and when my wife um, uh, was going to school in Unicleet, um, uh, he uh, she heard about these two brothers coming in from Akiak and um, and uh, they they couldn't wait to meet them, and here uh, Owen and Robert came in, and um, and uh, uh, you know the sun was um, very hard on them, and uh, they had a real dark tan, and um, and uh, my wife would um, uh, tell me about um, how um, excited they were to meet them, hmm. uh, but. Uh, those stories, um, you know, I think Rod Perry is uh, correct, uh, absurd, and uh, it's unbelievable, and it's just like a dream. Um, but um, yeah, during my I did since 1992 with 15 
uh, completions. Um, I really uh, enjoyed the challenges um, every year, and um, and it's just uh, a special uh, uh, trail to be on with the uh, amount of um, uh, volunteers and villages um, uh, that are along the trail. That um, uh, it's really uh, special, um, mm-hmm. and I really. Uh, miss some of those uh, individuals like Nick Petruska from uh, Nikolai. Well, thank you, Mike. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and today we're talking about the 50th running of the Iditarod. The 50th anniversary is next year, but this is technically the 50th race. Uh, on the line with us are Jeff King, four-time Iditarod champ and has ran it so many times that neither one of us actually even know. Mike Williams, senior, who ran the race 15 times and last ran in 2013 and also ran to raise awareness about sobriety. Paige Drobny is also with us. She's ran, um, I believe, eight I Did Rods. We're going to ask her uh, about that in just a moment. But I wanted to make note of an email that came in. Someone uh, had, well, actually a call came in to ask me to mention, uh, this is a slight correction, that, of course, they shut down the streets of Anchorage for Furrandi as well, and that's been going on even longer than I did, Rod. And uh, I should have known to mention that in the beginning of the program because uh, we were out on the trails during the weekend sprint races, and um, my young dog, who's just a year old, she's a rescue pup, she was really thrilled by seeing the trails and that the dogs were coming through. And so she's looking for an internship if any Iditarod racers want to take on a young pup. Uh, Ruby's looking for a spot on a team. 1-800-478-8255 is the number to call us statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Paige, you are a biologist. Uh, you started running dogs in 2006, if I uh, am correct about that. And that was just in order to see the country and go camping and have some fun. What inspired you to jump into racing? Um, yeah, that's correct. I'm a fisheries biologist and was living in Fairbanks. Um, and um, Cody and I um, watched people going on backcountry trips with dogs and being able to carry so much more stuff because of the winter. And there's cabins all around out there and um, really great places to go. And we tried doing it on skis. And um, we are a little bit athletic, but having a team of dogs made us uh, that much more athletic and we could carry all the things that we needed um, for those backcountry trips. And also, we just love having having dogs and animals. We both grew up with animals, and um, and it just seemed like the right fit for us. Um, we never, I never intended on racing ever. Um, we we just loved um, having a dog team and traveling and seeing the state. Um, but at some point, you know, we were like, well, we should maybe we could enter, and then all of our drop bags and stuff are out there, and that's just a different way to see the country. And so. And I thought that I would actually hate racing. So I, and I was like, well, I'll just sign up for the hardest 300-mile race I can find, the Yukon Quest 300, starting in Fairbanks. And I did that thinking, well, I can just do this one time, and then I'll just, we'll just be done, and we can go back to doing our fun backcountry trips with the dogs. And, um, and during that race, um, you know, we had a dog we had raised as a pup named Stout, um, just 
climbing up Eagle Summit, watching that whole dog team work together. And it was just so inspiring watching them do what they do and loving it. And when we had to turn around to finish back in Central and the other 1,000-mile racers kept going, I just was heartbroken that I didn't get to keep going. And that's sort of uh, when that that passion sort of grew for racing. Uh, We just had so much fun. That's fantastic. So it uh, instead of just trying it once, you were hooked, huh? Yeah, I was hooked. We, you know, I never, I didn't grow up watching I Did a Rod or the Yukon Quest or knowing anything about sled dogs, really. Um, it was the move to Fairbanks that where a bunch of people have recreational teams, you know, like three to three to six dogs or 10 dogs or whatever. And, um, and we watched our friends um, you know, going on these trips with us and, um, never had intended on racing and that, that Yukon quest, um, definitely changed, changed my attitude. And, and I've been loving it ever since we changed our whole lives, um, for the dogs to have, you know, have better lives for the dogs. And, um, everything about what we do now is completely different than what we were doing then. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Paige. Jeff, turning back to you, there are less than 50 teams racing this year, 49, Years ago, uh, our friend, trail sweeper, longtime race volunteer and former public broadcasting uh, person, Will Peterson, said there were more than 75 years ago. What do you attribute that decline to? Is it the expense? Fewer people interested in running dogs? Or is it a concern because sponsors backing away because of PETA criticism about the, the way the dogs are treated? Yeah, well... I suppose there's a little bit of all that, but undoubtedly the number one reason, um, I believe, is financial. Um, it's super expensive uh, to do this well, and I did a rod by nature, won't let you do it unless you're doing it well. Um, and um, so I would have to say expense. You know, um, as far as <clears throat> there's certainly um, enough there's still a lot of people that want to do it. Uh, the qualifications have become a little tougher. You know, when I first ran the Iditarod, uh, you didn't have to qualify. It, you know, you basically, if you could spell the word dog, you could show up and go. And um, um, so, and for the most part, that worked. But it, it obviously has uh, changed dramatically. And as the um, race has gotten so much faster by those people who have really excelled and figured out how to do it well. Um, there are just fewer people who can even stay in that bubble of, uh, in that, in that environment, uh, of the race. I mean, my first Iditarod took 15 days and it was the year Rick Swenson set the record in 11 days, um, uh, and, you know, now 11 days is middle of the pack. Uh, and um, so things have changed. This race is, um, to do it well, it is, it is expensive. I think Mike could probably talk to the fact that it, uh, being off the road system in rural Alaska, you know, the first few Iditarods were dominated by teams from off the road system. Um, and... Uh, now that's harder to do, and again, it's it's expense. You know, I remember when I buy a bag of dog food in Anchorage for ten bucks, and now you know it's pushing sixty. Um, and so, expense is huge, but um, I think the interest is not has not um, waned at all. 
there are more races available. The Yukon Quest wasn't going on then. I don't think the Bear Grease was going on then. I'm not positive of that. Um, but there are so many more events that are not as absurd and grandiose as the Iditarod. And uh, saner, saner people have other options now. And uh, those of uh, those teams who um, have put their sights on Iditarod, um, you know, that obviously we still have that. But so I'd say there's more opportunity. I don't think it's waning. Um, it is expensive. I've lost some great staff in the last four or five years that was just fascinated and, and, and totally absorbed with the environment. But the thought of doing it on your own is, is uh, a commitment that often ends you in poverty and divorce, I think, both come to mind. Um, so <laughs> well, That's not very cheerful. <laughs> Oh, it, it is if you're on top of Rainy Pass on a sunny day with a team that's charging up Eagle Summit. Like, uh, it is unbelievable. I was telling my friend and musher running my team, Amanda, just last night about the highlights of the races I've run are finding that dog you weren't didn't realize how damn good it was until you got in the race, and all of a sudden you see this potential just come out um and it is um it is our addiction mm. to see that and to feel that talent and, and be there while it's blossoming it's it's just a, a fabulous feeling and i could just smile from ear to ear here and Paige talk about her young dogs charging up eagle summit and uh it is a feeling that um people are willing to give up a lot for, uh, and it and it is a distraction that often takes us away hmm. from other parts of our lives. Well, we did get an email, Jeff, uh, from someone who says, <laughs> according to online race stats, you have had 27 Iditarod finishes and 20... Well, that doesn't make sense. You couldn't have 27 finishes and 20 starts. Uh, you finished in the top 20, 20 times with uh, four wins, as we know. So uh, there's some information there for all of us about um, how how your racing career has gone. Thanks uh, again to our guests for being on. Mike, I want to turn back to you. Your son, uh, as we've noted, Mike Williams Jr., is also a successful musher. He won the Cusco 300 in December, beating Greg Larson by three seconds. And this was after Larson had beat him by a similar tight margin the year before. I think it was also three seconds. Uh, how exciting, uh, first of all. And does your son, Mike Williams Jr., train uh, and race? How does how does he differ from you when you were still racing? Well, uh, we always had dogs uh, forever, uh, ever since uh, time immemorial. And we're a few of the families that always had dogs. Um, and my dad uh, and my family uh, said we'll never... Uh, be without dogs ever um, you know we've used them for hunting um, and transportation from village to village and um, so we um, uh, we uh, used uh, them for everything and um, so we um, uh, have cut down 
two focusing on racing now. And there are um, a healthy amount of uh, mushers from western Alaska now. Uh, it has bounced back, and with the amount of young people that are getting back into it, uh, because the Cusco 300 uh, sled dog race has done a very good job in uh, uh, in uh, um, uh, getting uh, these uh, weekly 50-mile races with um, eight dog limit, and um, and many of the uh, young people are getting more uh, excited to get in on uh, these races, and uh, it's good to see uh, that bounce back. And I think. Um, um, in early days, uh, as um, uh, Jeff mentioned, uh, there were uh, a lot of people like Bobby Vent and uh, Herbie Nyakbuck and um, and those notable mushers, Emmett Peters and um, Carl Huntington, and you know, a lot of mushers from um, Interior, and of course, um, uh, we I've had Robert Ivan and uh, my uh, brother ran. The Iditarod, um, but uh, I think uh, uh, the most, um, uh, and Jeff is right, uh, the most um, uh, uh, issue for us in Western Alaska is um, the expense of coming in and um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, spending uh, the money that we don't have. I had to work full time uh, before. Um, in the past and took a couple of years off working to pay off my debt um, for running the Iditarod. So I worked full time to run the Iditarod and um, uh, training from uh, uh, working from nine to five and then training from five to midnight every day. So, mm. so it took a lot of sacrifice uh, on my part to do it. Uh, but I think right now, um, uh, Mike Jr. is um, uh, focused on, on uh, um, you know, training for the Iditarod, training for the Cusco, training for uh, local 50-mile uh, uh, races, and um, and um, and there's many uh, uh, sprint races back home, and we have races every weekend, so. Um, so I think uh, you uh, you can do that, uh, but uh, if you are going to be uh, focusing on the Iditarod, um, you know, uh, our friend and uh, Mike uh, Junior's uh, uh, best friend Pete Kaiser, you know, he uh, he's been participating uh, in these races up until the last 150 race in Bethel, and um, uh, but it's hard to participate in those um, local races back there and, um, you know, having to uh, bring the dogs into town and then, um, you know, uh, training out of um, Willow or Wasilla or Big Lake or wherever, um, you know, pretty close to Anchorage. Sure. And takes a lot of time. So takes a lot of time uh, and money and uh, logistics to move people and all the dogs and everything. Um, so I can see why it, it is uh, an expensive endeavor. You were you had to work full time to kind of support your your uh, mushing habit. Paige, uh, before we take a break here at the bottom of the hour, I, I want to turn back to you. Your husband, Cody, is also a racer. How many other husband wife mushing teams are you aware of? 
Oh goodness. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, <laughs> Allie and Alan, of course, sure. um, but they're no longer racing. So, um, Michelle Phillips and Ed Hopkins, um, but Ed is sort of, you know, has sort of, um, removed himself a little bit more from the race, some from big races, but yeah, I'm not quite sure if there's, I can't think of anybody else. That's interesting. So not a whole lot of, uh, husband-wife teams out there. You're still in this year's race, but your husband has withdrawn. 14 people have withdrawn. Um, can you or do you want to talk at all about why he withdrew? Um, yeah, we both signed up on the first day. Um, Cody found out shortly after that that he had to have shoulder surgery in uh, late July, and he was going to have a six-month recovery. And um, you know, it takes a whole lot of people and, and time and energy and effort, as um, both Jeff and Mike have said, to get to the starting line for one team. And to do that for two teams with one of our key people out uh, with, you know, not being able to do really much of anything with his shoulder um, just made it seem like an insurmountable task. Sure. So, um, so, yeah, we decided just to focus all our energies on one team, and, um, and I'm sure he'll be back next year. All right. Well, uh, best of luck in his healing up. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jeff King, Mike Williams Sr., and Paige Dromney as we talk about the 50th running of the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the 50th running of the Iditarod right now. That's happening this, it starts this weekend. You can join our conversation. We've got Jeff King, Mike Williams Sr., and Paige Drobny on the line with us today, all uh, multi-time Iditarod racers. You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org, as Meg Hills did. She says, I was a nurse in Nome during those early years working at was what was then the Maynard McDougal Memorial Hospital. It was exciting to be on duty when we would hear the siren indicating a racer was in the home stretch coming into town. 
We would let non-essential staff go downtown to cheer them on. The siren would go off at all times of the day and night. Very fun times, as I'm sure it still is. She said it was lots of fun memories. Let's hear from an indigenous driver who also raced in the early days. Ken Chase is an Athabascan musher who ran the first Iditarod in 1973. I did it because I just liked the camaraderie. I liked to meet other drivers. And at that time, the dogs were kind of going out of style. There was not many dogs left in the village, and that race kind of put a little boost into the dog mushing world again in, in Alaska. A lot of the village people got involved in the early years when it was easy to run and didn't cost so much. That was Ken Chase, an Athabascan musher who lives in Anvik and ran in the first Iditarod in 1973 and 15 more races after he remains actively involved today. Mike, what do you think about that? Did the Iditarod help boost mushing in your village? And, and if so, um, how does that continue today? Yeah, um, after the snow machine showed up, um, a lot of people, um, you know, dropped uh, mushing slowly. And um, but uh, Robert Ivan, uh, my family, and several uh, more families uh, always kept dogs. And um, and I think there's uh, five um, uh, current uh, teams in Akiak and uh, and uh, and we just uh, uh, like to. Um, um, you know, get uh, uh, something going uh, with the youth mushing program uh, within our community, uh, much like uh, what um, uh, George Atla did in Heaslia uh, uh, with the Frank Atla program. But uh, I think uh, with uh, uh, the culture, the a reason why we kept dogs, to, uh, dog care and uh, veterinary care and um, all other things that we do, um, fishing and hunting for them and feeding them every day and t- uh, taking good care of them. I think uh, that's what um, uh, that's what we did and what's what we do. And um, they're more, uh, more uh, than racing for us to keep the dog team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they are special and uh, part of the family. And, uh, and I think that's what uh, Ken Chase uh, our good friend is uh, talking about is that um, um, you know taking care of the dogs and then um, then uh, racing them. But mm-hmm. uh, the most um, challenging part is the again, it's the um, uh, finances that um, is the factor in much of the rural. Uh, village team. Sure, absolutely. As Jeff noted, you know, dog food was at one time $10 a, a bag, and now it's $60 if you're going to buy good food for the dogs, and certainly that's what they need. We have on the line with us now our friend Will Peterson, who was in public broadcasting for many, many years and also has helped out on the on the Iditarod Trail for many, many years. Hi, Will. Morning, Lori. So good to have you on. Uh, you had talked earlier when you were talking to Adeline uh, about how much better the trail is now. How is that? How has it changed? And what do you attribute that to? Well, it, uh, the trail is way better. Um, when those, in those early days, when Ken was talking about camaraderie, they, there weren't 
just uh, trail breakers out in front of them. We've got a fairly well-groomed trail. I'm not sure when the trail breakers are leaving Anchorage within today or tomorrow, probably. And they'll go out and work on the trail and make sure the rough spots are smoothed out and that it's uh, no or very few obstacles in the way. And and, um, and it's well marked back back in the 70s. Um, there wasn't a snow machine or a group of snow machines on the trail. Um, if they got stuck in a storm, they were basically stuck in a storm. They're still required to carry snowshoes, but um, you have a hard time finding a musher who's been on snowshoes uh, during the race. So um, part of it is they're just throwing a lot more money at it. Um, you know, they're the um, when they're competing for the amount of money they are at first place, uh, there's a demand for a better trail. So the Iditarods responded to that um, over the years and clearly spend a lot more money than they did back then. Mm. We have an email from Williams who says, I'm completely enjoying the show this morning. He arrived in Alaska on February 15th, 1974. At the airport, the Ferrandi races were going on. It was the only thing airing on the black and white TVs in the airport. He says, we went downtown, watched some of the racing. A couple of weeks later, along came the Iditarod. Um, and he says, I was of a California mind that it was cruel until I saw the dogs run. I have enjoyed watching the races ever since. At one point, I was working at a seafood processing plant with Susan Butcher. Susan was living in Big Lake, didn't have sponsors then. She was allowed to take fish products that couldn't be used with her to feed her dogs. When she would come into our office, we would have to tell her to get downwind because of the fish smell. I love the competition between Susan and the other mushers. In fact, I think I still have my T-shirt that says, The Iditarod, where men are men and women win the Iditarod, or something to that effect. He says, I love this race, and I hope it never stops. Paige, um, turning to you, the first woman to finish the race was Mary Shields in 1974, and Libby Riddles first won it in 1985. This year, there's 49 drivers signed up, as we noted earlier. 17 are women, including you. Thinking back to Mary Shields, what do you think about the number of women racers today? Are you surprised that there are this many or that there are only this many? Um, I mean, I guess I'm surprised that there's only this many because I feel like the opportunity is there and that, um, and maybe, and I think maybe there's going to be more in the future. You know, the junior I did rod just took off here out of, um, on the Denali highway and there was 10 junior, um, musher women and five junior musher men. And so I think that, um, maybe it, we're still just growing as a, um, as a, people that are wanting to get into dogs and, and run thousand mile races. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting both Mary Shields and Libby Riddles. And um, it's really cool. I can't imagine, um, you know, 50 years ago being that person that does that. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a really cool thing that to see those women do it um, back in, back in those days. Mm-hmm. We have another email about mushing couples. This is from Gretchen, who says Jeff Dieter and Katie Jo Dieter of Black Spruce Dog Sledding in Fairbanks are both running Iditarod this year. It's Jeff's sixth race and Katie Jo's rookie run. She says, full disclosure, I'm Jeff's mom. All right. Thanks, Jeff's mom, for helping us understand that there are other mushing couples out there. Let's go back to the phones. Todd is in Anchorage. Hi, Todd. Hello, hello. Thanks for the show here. I've got a quick question for Jeff King, and other people can probably address it too. But the reason Jeff King is 
because uh, I don't know if this even still online, but um, in Dan Seavey's book, The First Great Race, about the 1973 Adirad, he talks about uh, one point, quote, uh, four-time race champion Jeff King was one of the first to adopt the lazy boy sit-down style of sled riding. <laughs> and he, he said it figures, he figured it added 10 years to his racing career by reducing back strain from standing on the freaking runners all the time. How has that sort of innovation not only affected efficiency and ability of people to tolerate doing this immense stuff, but also the, the cost involved instead of slapping together some boards and you're done. Now you're talking kind of higher tech stuff. I just wonder how that's been. I'll I'll, I'll hang up. Well, thank you for the question, Todd. Uh, Jeff has um, is known for lots of different innovations. Uh, Jeff, talk a little bit about yeah, your well, your lazy boy recliner. <laughs> um, well, uh, I have no doubt that uh, that change of sled design. Um, if you look within. Uh, two years after the first time I used it, the race record went down by 24 hours. And I am convinced that um, that is part of the reason the mush, you know, I uh, consistently had volunteers, long time my Diderot volunteers tell me in places like Shaktulik and Koya near the end of the race, they said that those of us driving those sleds looked so much less tired personally than we had before. And I know for a fact that uh, for myself, uh, I think it did add 10 years to my racing career. Um, And, uh, you know, when I I first used that sled in the Cusco 300, um, I was so sure I was onto something. I didn't want anyone to see it, but I thought um, the Cusco is only a month before the Iditarod, the first time I'd be using it, I thought I can show it off and unveil it in Bethel a month before the race. Nobody could uh, build one in time, and I would have at least one year with this uh, sled advantage. And uh, leaving the Cusco start, um, within the first 10 miles, Martin Boozer was in the race, and he caught and passed me, which he often did, especially in the beginning of the race. And as he went by me showing, uh, and I was sitting down on the sled as he went by and he said, you have added 10 years to our career. And, uh, and by the start of the, I did about 30 days later, he had one. He had saw enough passing me once went home after the Cusco built one and started the, I did a rod with it. Um, and the next year, um, almost everybody, it was just a few years ago, I don't know, I think uh, 18 or 19, um, I think uh, one of the Barringtons or possibly both of them are the only ones who had a sled that didn't have uh, that option. But it was uh, super fun. I do want to take mention that the question included uh, somehow it would increase the expense and that before we just slapped some boards together, I can assure you we weren't slapping boards together uh, for a sled, whether it was a conventional traditional sled or one um, with the uh, rearranged. Um, I remember the instant on the Denali Highway while training 
my team exhausted and wanting to sit down so bad. And um, that concept and that innovation came to me as I crossed this Susitna River Bridge, headed back to Cantwell, just dead on my feet. And I looked behind me at the runners and said, there's a way there's a way to change this. And anyway, um, mm. that's how it happened. I, I think, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I also went to Norman Vaughn's 91st birthday party in downtown Anchorage. And they had dogs pull Norman in um, through the, through the uh, auditorium full of tables and people and, there were uh, big VCR screens with dignitaries from around the world to wish Norman a happy birthday. And, uh, and he was sitting on uh, a sit-down sled. I think Martin had uh, provided him the sled, but I was with him, and he looked at me and he said, oh, my God, I wish I'd have had this when I was racing. <laughs> and... Uh, it was it was really uh, really fun to see him beaming ear to ear while sitting on my lazy boy sled. <laughs> That's fantastic! What a great story! Thank you for that. We are going to uh, take another short break. When we come back, we'll take more calls and questions as Talk of Alaska continues. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. With Omicron spreading fast, many Alaskans will test positive for COVID nineteen. If this happens to you, what should you do? Head home and isolate as best as you can away from others. Let your close contacts know they may have been exposed so they can quarantine. Get plenty of rest and stay hydrated. Call your doctor. Treatments may be available, especially if you are at high risk for severe illness. If your symptoms worsen, seek medical help. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services. It's Sobriety Awareness Month in Alaska. If alcohol is hindering you from living your best life, Recover Alaska is here to help whether you're sober, thinking of reducing your drinking, or wanting to support a loved one who is struggling. Recover Alaska is normalizing sober and sober curious lifestyles through its virtual sober lounge. Get inspiration, access resources, and measure your relationship with alcohol at recoveralaska.org. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're discussing the 50th running of the Iditarod today with veteran mushers Jeff King, Mike Williams Sr., and Paige Drobny. And uh, we're going to go to the phones now. Again, Kippy is in Anchorage. Hello. Hello. Did you have a question? Uh, I, I just had some uh, memories from Shaq Uh We taught there many years. Uh, uh, one year, uh, my daughter got married and... Uh, uh, we had the uh, reception in the school gym, and my husband went over to the checkpoint and invited all the mushers over for turkey and uh, a good meal. Uh, w- one year we lived across uh, the street from uh, the the uh, checker, and uh, he'd tell them to come over to our house. We'd just leave the door open, and uh, we'd keep uh, moose stew warming on the on the uh, wood stove all night long, and the lashes would come in and have some and sleep on our living room floor and use our dryer to dry their clothes. Uh, Susan Butcher had a favorite person she liked to stay with uh, named Lucy in our village, and 
she'd always bring a couple of her dogs into the house. And uh, <laughs> after the race, we'd always see Lucy's mattress outside getting aired off from the smell of the dogs. <laughs> and uh, let's see, Franklin Penutput Jr., Libby always liked to stay with him, and uh, he advised her that she could make it through a blizzard to a cabin between Shaktulik and Koyuk, and she was the only one out of the village uh, to go through that blizzard first, and uh, she won the race. Hmm. Uh, let's see. I think that's about all uh, the memories I have. I uh, It was really nice the days when the mushers could uh, come into our homes. Well, thank you so much for the call. It's great to hear those memories, and it sounds like you had a lot of fun in those days helping out the mushers. Paige, I want to turn back to you. Uh, we had one question by email about lead dogs, and how many dogs uh, on your team do you have that could be a lead dog um, and that could really be a lead dog? So there's that question from, by email. Um, and so, Paige, if you want to comment about that and then tell us what you know about the trail this year and what kind of race you think it's going to be. Um, yeah, so this year on my team, I think um, I'm going to be leaving the start line with about 10 lead dogs. Um, and they all, you know, just like people lead in, um, differently in different situations, all the, all the dogs will lead in different situations and are good at leading in different situations. Some dogs are good at leading just when it's, you know, sunny out and the trail's in great conditions. And, and then other dogs are really great at leading through a storm or through some, you know, up mountains or whatever. And so it's really great to have that depth of leaders in your team um, in order to perform all those different tasks. Um, as far as the trail this year, I haven't really heard a whole lot yet. Um, we, you know, I live out on the Denali Highway and we've had um, snow nearly every day for, for months now. And so we've just been uh, breaking trail and uh, dealing with wind and snow uh, constantly. You know, it's been just been a couple days in the last week where I've actually seen the sun, I feel like, since all winter. Um, and so I guess I'm hoping for tough conditions on the trail, too. I, like I said, I haven't really heard what they are this year, but I'm hoping that it's not a hard and fast trail because uh, we haven't really been training on that this year. Yeah, lots and lots of uh, fresh snow very often. Uh, without tipping your hand to your fellow competitors, what will you be focused on and planning for in this year's race? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. I kind of uh, waxed and waned over the years about how much I plan for running and resting. And um, sometimes, you know, I'm uh, I'm really stringent before the race, and I'm like, okay, this is exactly how it's going to go. And I get kind of a little bit more stressed out about how things are going to go. And then other years where I just am like, well, whatever's going to happen happens and I don't plan anything. Then it seems like we do better those years. And, um, and this year, uh, for some reason, I'm in, in the second camp where I just am like, well, whatever happens happens. So I don't really have a plan at this point. And uh, I don't know what the trail conditions are. I know what my team can do. And, um, and so I think we're just going to be making those decisions along the trail. Okay. All right. Well, here's another email from Jody, who says, Many years ago, 1979, I worked with an Alaskan aviation welder fabricator icon, Jim Hutchison. She says, Hutch was the great 
father-in-law to Rick Swenson. Rick wanted to be able to carry some hot or at least warm dog food on his sled to give at least a small amount of food to his dogs between stops. He asked Hutch to build an insulated stainless steel dog food box that would fit on his sled. Hutch folded up the box, asked me to weld it up because he was at 79 a little bit twitchy. (laughs) So we built the box and Rick won the race that year. What a great story. Thank you for that story. Uh, I I wanted to ask Mike, let's talk just a a minute. Uh, We only have a couple minutes left here, but you had mentioned earlier, Mike, in in an interview before today's show that you see different mixes in the breed of dogs that mushers use now. Talk about what you're seeing and what dogs you preferred when you were racing. Well, uh, we had um, uh, regular Huskies um, uh, that uh, traced back uh, in Akiak uh, with the Red Dogs, and uh, my dad had those. And um, we um, uh, then um, um, uh, uh, bred them with uh, uh, dogs from George Atla and uh, and also Gareth Wright and to uh, mix, mix those um, uh, breeds up and... Um, and they came up with uh, these uh, tough uh, dogs that had fur and good feet, and um, and um, and um, they would eat everything that you uh, give them. And uh, but those are the uh, types of uh, dogs that we have, and and we have tried some of those um, um, hounds as well, uh, but. Um, we try to uh, minimize uh, uh, the bloodline for uh, some of those racing hounds that we see in the rendezvous. Um, but uh, I would prefer um, uh, the uh, regular huskies that um, that um, um, that have been around for a long time and um, and um, and to do less uh, maintenance on them. And uh, of course. Um, uh, we feed, um, um, you know, we have to feed more if uh, if uh, uh, if the dogs are, um, you know, we have to uh, take uh, very good care of them if they don't have the fur. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but uh, I think uh, overall, um, you know, I prefer huskies. And uh, Jeff, uh, talk a little bit about the dogs that you are raising and prefer, and and then what do you think the race will look like in the future? Do you think it'll exist for another fifty years? What do you hope? What do you hope for the Iditarod going forward? Well, first the dogs. Uh, you know, uh, some of my first bloodlines that um, were most influential were from uh, a dog I got from my good friend, Brian Imus. When he worked for Susan Butcher, he got a puppy from her. Ultimately, uh, Brian sold me the dog he got. His dog's name was Yuxi, and uh, for many years he was my superstar. Um, And uh, ultimately, um, I... uh, bred a dog that was out of Uxie to um, a streeper dog named Kale. And uh, between uh, the Susan Butcher line and the streeper line, I, I was really lucked out with a really fabulous line of dogs um, that uh, I couldn't be more proud of. Uh, 
as far as the future of the race, uh, you know, what I hope for is easy and what I predict, I, I'm not willing to, per, I, I couldn't tell you, but, um, the, um, the passion is there. I can't believe the Iditarod will ever go away. It is obviously at risk of changing. I don't know if, if I should say at risk, um, it has changed from the beginning, um, has changed again. And uh, as far as um, um, whether it became, you know, I, I must admit, I, I think back to my days when Cabela's was my sponsor. And, uh, and I, I considered them pretty savvy businessmen. And they were very supportive of me in the race for, for many years. But in the end, they said to me, Jeff, the Iditarod is a local event with a worldwide audience, but it is a regional event. And um, like the person who wrote in today, Williams from, from California, uh, people outside of Alaska and other parts of the world, it is uncomprehensible for them to understand how good these dogs are treated and and the level of um respect that they have um from us and and i think you could tell people over and over and over there will be some that will never believe us and uh you know i went to peter's headquarters in la a few years ago and and sat with uh in a room full of people that were just answering the phone it was a concrete tele-radio or a, a phone bank system. And I could just picture these people soliciting money um, from people by telling them the Iditarod was um, cruel and inhumane. And, you know, I had my lead dog, Zig, with me, who jumped up on the table, wagging her tail at the vice president. And they said, you know what? We don't care. You, you, we don't believe you. We don't care. You wasted your time to come visit us. Um, so, well, at I least know, you tried. In my heart, there will always be people who just don't get it, and I don't really care anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, Jeff, that's our final word of the day. Uh, we did have a note uh, to say, please, uh, by email, please give a shout out to Hobo Jim, the late Hobo Jim for his song commemorating the Iditarod. Certainly lots of good music from Hobo Jim about the race. Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adeline Baxter. And thanks to our guests, Jeff King, Mike Williams Sr. and Paige Drobny. Good luck out there on the race this year, everyone. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.